Welcome to Book Club. We wanted to read literally every poem and talk yes. about every single one. <laughs> Why do I breathe? <laughs> yeah, you don't. Um, go read it yourself. You gotta read the whole thing. Go read it. It's wonderful. Um, yeah, I read the whole thing in two days. Um, <laughs> partially because Victoria takes long to read things but she gets it first. <laughs> I hope Wes Anderson, as a young child, thought to himself. Yeah. <laughs> I am an aesthetic. Like, he learned the word aesthetic. You liked historical fiction, and I liked dragon. Uh, welcome to the party. Welcome, guys. Welcome to Book Club. With Julia. And Victoria. We are two roommates and friends since high school who read a book and talk about it each episode. This episode, we're discussing Citizen, an American lyric by Claudia Rankin. If you haven't read this wonderful, long poem, I thought it was a collection of poems. I was corrected by Julia. <laughs> If you haven't read this lyric, uh, please go do so. Uh, check out a book from the library. Buy it from your local bookstore. Um, we will have spoilers in this episode. Uh, so mm-hmm. you've been warned. Welcome to the party, everyone. Welcome. Um, yeah, this was a book that I read in college. Uh, y'all are probably tired of hearing about the same poetry class that I took when we talked about Morgan Parker and we talked about um, slam poetry and anyway, it's come up a couple times, but um, it was all about the contemporary poetry and like the new forms uh, that poetry is taking and the ways that people are sort of pushing the boundaries of what poetry is. Um, And this was a standout for me. Like I didn't keep most of the books from that class, but I, I definitely kept this one. Um, Cause I just read it all in one go. I feel like I went into this trance almost like I feel I, my experience reading it the first time I have a very vivid memory of it where I was just like sucked into it and I disappeared from the world for like two hours. And then I came out of it and I was like, Whoa. Um, and there are some parts that are kind of convoluted and like purposefully um, not very concrete. And I remember feeling the first time I read it, like I understood exactly what she was feeling. It like tapped into something for me. Um, And this time around I reread it this week and uh, I did not get it. So I think I was more distracted this past week. Um, But Yeah, it really blew me away. And I think part of the reason it stuck with me so much was um, the time when I read it. So I read it, uh, I can't remember which semester I took this class, but I think it was the second semester of my senior year. So it was just after the 2016 election and um, Black Lives Matter as an organization and a movement was started while we were in college. So it was very recent. Um, and, you know, there were a lot of marches happening on my campus. And, you know, it felt like there was a lot happening. Um, and it was all very new for me. You know, activism was like a space that I was not used to. And um, intentionally reading Black authors was also not something that I was taught to do. So that was very new. And so taking this book, reading it, it really moved me. And then I went to class and hearing the thoughts of all of my um, contemporaries and their experiences. And it was just a very, very formative moment for me in my like growing understanding of systemic racism and what we need to do to stop it and all that good stuff. Uh, Yeah. I don't think I'll ever forget it. So this is to me, this is like required reading for (laughs) everybody uh but yeah we should add it to our required reading shelf in our <laughs> living yeah room. oh that's a great idea julie and i uh as we noted we are roommates and we've had a little shelf underneath our tv that julia is kind of like the lead she takes the lead on decorating around here <laughs> <laughs> and she created this cute little pile of books and i'm like oh i like those those are such great titles and she's like yeah exactly these are the required reading but they're not home which is funny because <laughs> no one ever comes to our house anymore because right. of covid but in theory if you're sitting on our couch waiting for us to like put our shoes on or make um 
some tea to hang out, uh, you can browse through our collection of books that we find really important for everyone to read. Um, yeah. Maybe we should do a mini so just on what's what's our required reading. Uh, yeah. Quote unquote. I mean, it's. I mean, it's we've covered uh, most of them. <laughs> yeah, nearly every one of those books. Um, <laughs> At this, yeah, and it, they're all small books as well. They're like, they're the type of book where like you could pick it up and be like, oh yeah, I could finish this today or tomorrow. Um, like if you were staying at our house for a weekend and you needed a book, you could just like pick up this little tiny book about autism or race or feminism. And you'd be like, yeah, I can, I can finish that. That's not hard. Um, (laughs) A beautiful ideal of a friend coming for the weekend and deciding, ah, I'm just going to sit here and read a book. And you're like, yes, (laughs) this is why we're friends. Um, yeah, someday, someday, someday. Uh, so can't wait. My uh, experience reading Citizen, it's been something that Julia's recommended often on the podcast when mm-hmm. we've uh, read contemporary poetry, when we read books about the Black Lives Matter movement um, or adjacent to that as far as systemic uh, racism in America. And so I've known it's like, OK, this is a seminal book. People have talked about it. I'll likely read it someday. Um, so I feel like approaching it ended up being a little more intimidating than Mm. maybe it would have been otherwise. So approaching it, I had this intimidation that like I, uh, one, sometimes I feel towards poetry in general and two towards poetry that people have like spoken to me a lot about that. I feel like, okay, I really need to know this. I really need to Mm. dig in. Um, and I'm appreciative to have this time on the podcast to discuss it. It it always feels to me like a more relaxed version of going to class to talk about the book. Yeah, like you've prepared yeah. your thoughts, you've thought about it some, but you're really open to hearing what other people have to say too, um, to help kind of final like form a wider understanding of the text. And so that's yeah. how I've kind of uh, beaten back my imposter syndrome with the mm. podcast is like reminding myself like this is like going to class. Like sometimes your first impression of a certain passage might not be what other people see in it. Or maybe there's more to it that the author was referencing to than I necessarily initially understood. So mm-hmm. I'm coming with a lot of <laughs> humility and um, I'm excited to talk about it overall. Mm-hmm. I like Julia. I really got sucked in when I first sat down to read it. And it made me a, a bigger question to have as we get into form is, is this really to be read in one sitting? Because mm-hmm. it is technically all one poem. Mm-hmm. Um, so I read about a third of it, maybe two third to half of it mm-hmm. in one sitting. Um, and then it took me a little longer to finish up, which I think we'll talk through of like how this book kind of paces itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall enjoyed it, would recommend it. Um, but would also note, like if, if you like really intimidated by poetry, uh, don't feel like you have to get all of it the first time. If you want to yeah. tackle this book, go for it. If you're like, I haven't read a poem since high school. <laughs> um, at the end, we'll give some recommendations of other poets you might be interested in, uh, quote unquote, starting with. I don't think this really has to be a starting place, but maybe mm-hmm. an entry point to poetry for you. Yeah, for sure. It um, The first two sections probably are like, I think should be required reading. Like if I were teaching a poetry class, I would like take one of the first two segments and have like an excerpt from this poem and have that be studied in class. Um, The farther along you go, the more complicated it is to read. Um, So yeah, it it might take a couple of reads uh, for sure. So before we dive into the poem, I have a little bit about our author here, the poet Claudia Rankin. She was born in Kingston, Jamaica, and earned her BA in English from Williams College and her MFA in poetry from Columbia University. She has taught at several universities and currently is uh, a Fred- Frederick Eisman Professor of Poetry at Yale University. Mm. She's been, <laughs> she's held like all the honors in the book, it seems. Um, she's won so many awards for her poetry. And her editing and her playwriting, like, I'm not even going to list them all here. <laughs> Check out her website and her Wikipedia. Um, one that I thought was pretty big. Uh, she was elected as a chancellor to the Academy of American Poets. So basically, wow, 
the Academy of American Poets. It's, it is what it sounds like. <laughs> and they pick, uh, they nominate and elect like the poets of our generation, uh, you know, of, con- of the current realm of poets to kind of sit as chancellors and make decisions on editing and whatnot. What gets included, what doesn't. Um, a couple big projects to note. She started the Racial Imaginary Institute. She started this with, uh, she got a MacArthur Genius Grant, which is also like, wow, holy cow. <laughs> and she, she used that grant money to start this institute. And I find it really fascinating. I'll read a little bit from their site. Our name, Racial Imaginary, is meant to capture the enduring truth of race. It is an invented concept that nevertheless operates with extraordinary force in our daily lives, limiting our movements and imaginations. We understand that perceptions, resources, rights, and lives themselves flow along racial lines that confront some of us with restrictions and give others uninterrogated power. These lines are drawn and maintained by white dominance, even as individuals and communities alike continually challenge them. Because no sphere of life is untouched by race, the Institute gathers under its, (laughs) sorry, Aegis, A-E-G-I-S. How do you say that? Aegis? I'm Googling that word. I literally don't know what it means. Aegis? Okay. Aegis, the protection, backing, or support of a particular person or organization. Aegis. Oh, yeah, because that's the name of... um... Oh, one of the, I'm too deep in Percy Jackson right now, but one of Zeus's children has a shield called Aegis. Oh yeah. That's the second definition. Yeah. (laughs) An attribute of Zeus and Athena usually represented as a goatskin shield. Cool. Cool. A little, uh, Greek roots lesson. (laughs) (laughs) Um, thank you. Coming in with those GreekSchoolImaginary.org teaching us new words. (laughs) Um, okay, because no sphere of life is untouched by race, the Institute gathers under its aegis an interdisciplinary range of artists, writers, knowledge producers, and activists. It convenes a cultural laboratory in which the racial imaginaries of our time and place are engaged, read, countered, contextualized, and demystified. So, okay, I know that was kind of long, but I thought it was really beautifully written. Mm-hmm. So beautifully written so that I didn't even know what one of the words meant. Yeah. Um, but always learning. Uh, <laughs> in addition, another big project, which is actually featured in Citizen, is she's done a series of videos with uh, John Lucas called The Situation. And these look at different uh, events in American uh, politics and culture, national, national and natural disasters. Mm. Um, and so we do get some of those in this book, kind of like the transcript version. Uh, you can watch them on her site if you want to learn more. Um, so yeah, I didn't go deep dive on her personal life. There wasn't a whole lot out there, which will respect mm-hmm. that privacy. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so if you skimmed through those author bio notes and didn't listen, just know Rankin <laughs> did a lot of cool stuff. She's <laughs> continually doing cool stuff and she will probably do more cool stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah, those... Um those video transcripts uh, towards the end of the book, I did not understand the first time I read it. I was pretty confused. Like, yeah, like my, my teacher basically had to say like, oh yeah, these are videos. I think we watched one and it like all clicked in place. I was like, oh, okay. Um, so then I was like, who is this guy? Why is his name here? And the way they're all like individually introduced with like a date on them and um yeah some of them have watermarks I was yeah I was confused so I was not reading taking it at face value when I first read it it's literally a transcript from an actual video in my mind I'm like is this some sort of poetic device to create these imaginary videos Uh... and you know like in (laughs) like Dracula's quote-unquote based off of letters and like first first person accounts of these different activities but no it's just Bram Stoker sitting down writing these letters I thought it was like the um, artistic license of Rankin uh, to be like, so I'm like, what does it mean to be a video versus to be a poem? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I went too far. Um, no, they're literally transcripts. She was like, I wrote this thing and it was awesome once. I think it'll work on the page. So I'm just going to put it here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and in one case, cool. yeah, I agree. And in one case she like put 
some of the film footage as like images on the page. Um, Hi friends, Julia here. If you want some more amazing book-related content, there are three ways that you can support us right now. The first is to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you feel that we are worthy of a five-star review. The second is to buy us a coffee. It's just a one-time donation, like the price of a cup of coffee. Um, There's a widget on our website and also through our Instagram link tree. Uh, And then the last one is to subscribe to Pod Hero. It's a platform where you just pay a single like monthly subscription fee that's really cheap and it gets split between all of your favorite podcasts you can support everyone you love all at once it's amazing and we use it as well um so yeah that's it thanks for all your support let's get back to books so yeah so speaking of those video transcripts she's got a lot of different kinds of stuff in uh in this book like it's not just composed of a bunch of little poems or one very long poem it's got a ton of pieces in it um and she actually divides it into what is it like seven sections um and so there's like little vignettes of Moments where she's, I think the frame story is that she's sort of remembering these moments of like different microaggressions. Um, a lot of times from people she trusts or people she thinks she should trust. Um, and then there's like basically an essay about Serena Williams and <laughs> um, black anger. And then there's like video transcripts and there's lists and there's um, images of uh, art, like visual art pieces uh, scattered throughout, um, including on the cover. There's like so many different pieces to this. Um, and it's a really fascinating sort of collection of, to me, it feels like a collection of evidence, um, sort of compiling her, uh, all the, all the stuff together. This is all the stuff that, um, presents the best case or the best representation of my experience and not me as in Julia, but me as in Claudia Rankin. Um, her experience. And yeah, that uh, I don't know. That's sort of the impression that I get when I'm reading it. Um, is that she's like, look, it's not just me. I'm not just talking from my perspective, though. I will show you a bunch of examples of things that have happened in my own life, but also here's a bunch of other people's, uh, experiences and representations and, um, it's pretty cool. Um, but should we talk about the fact that it's uh, one giant poem? <laughs> yeah. So when Julie and I sat down to prep this episode, I'm like, okay, do we want to pick like a couple poems to focus in on like we usually do? Uh-huh. And Julie's like, well, it is just one poem. And I'm like, okay, well, we see how much I understood this. <laughs> um, I was like, oh, I just thought they were titleless, but that makes a lot more sense. Um, yeah. She's like, yeah, it, it says lyric on the front. So Julia, <laughs> what is a lyric? In this, in the world of poetry. Cool. Um, I don't know if I can give you a textbook definition, but it's uh, a very long poem that I think is, I think it's meant to be sung. I don't know how it's different from an epic poem. Um, maybe we should look this up. But I know that uh, Milton's Paradise Lost is considered a lyric poem. Um. That's all I know. <laughs> okay. From the trusty Wikipedia. Uh-huh. Um, lyric poetry is a formal type of poetry which expresses personal emotions or feelings, typically spoken in the first person. It is not equivalent to song lyrics, though they are often in the lyric mode. Um, so basically they're saying it's not the same as song lyrics, but some song lyrics might be considered lyric poetry. Uh-huh. Um, and then... Academy of American Poets would like to argue with 
Rankin, because they say lyric poetry refers to a short poem, (laughs) often with song-like qualities that expresses the speaker's personal emotions and feelings. Historically intended to be sung and accompany musical instrumentation, lyric now describes a broad category of non-narrative poetry, including elegies, odes, and sonnets. So I was very wrong. Uh, Milton is an epic poem, and I was thinking of something totally different. Okay, great. So See, we're here to learn. We're here to learn. We're here to learn. So <laughs> other famous hmm. oh I was gonna say uh, famous examples include Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, uh Longfellow's My Lost Youth, and Samuel Taylor Coleridge's Ode to Dejection. There's also uh Sappho is noted for her mm-hmm. lyrics. Um so meant to be sung, yeah. like perhaps like a Greek chorus type thing or like a sonnet um, and has a int- like very strict rhyme scheme in some cases. Um, some of those, like they typically do rhyme is, is what I'm hearing. These different examples are like um, pretty yeah, rhymey. I, this last bit about lyric now describes a broad category of non-narrative mm. poetry makes me think that it's like, it's just expanded and expanded. Got it. So lyric poetry was probably originally these short song-like poems that were meant to be accompanied by music. And now it's kind of a looser term to include mm-hmm. a lot of, because like an elegy is like usually for someone who has passed mm-hmm. <laughs> an ode to someone that you adore or love. Mm-hmm. A sonnet also tends to have connotations of love or unrequited love. Mm-hmm. Um, so interesting. But I think the the key piece that we can pull out from these definitions is that it expresses the speaker's personal emotions and feelings. Mm-hmm. And then the note from the other definition, which I will caveat, was actually straight from Wikipedia. So we'll let people fight that out. Um, <laughs> they mentioned that it's typically in first person, which I think is mm-hmm. really interesting to note here. Yeah. Um, we have a whole portion of this episode dedicated <laughs> <laughs> to the fact that this is not in first person. Yeah. Um, but we'll Very stick important. to the structure and form for now. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know why I had this very strong connection of Milton with Citizen in my head. It must have come up in class at some point. Maybe someone was arguing that it was more of an epic poem and less of a lyric poem or something. Um, but is it? it is interesting that she has decided... This is a lyric. She declares it in the title. Um, And it's a very long poem. You could argue it does have somewhat of a narrative, um, though not necessarily linear. Um, And typically you associate lyrics with singing, just like your average person on the street we're like, yeah. what is a lyric? I think it's interesting. That feels so college, <laughs> college literature class that someone's like, I know this book says an American lyric on the front, but I'm going to argue this is, in fact, an epic poem. <laughs> like, <laughs> that does, right? Rankin herself cannot decide what this actually is. We will argue. <laughs> and I'm like, I feel like that's kind of a mute point. If she hadn't defined what kind of poem it was, I'm open to it. But when right. she straight up tells you what it is. Yeah. Maybe like the video transcripts, we need to not read too much into it. <laughs> I like that this collection poem, what do we even call it? This book? <laughs> yeah. Is really multimedia. Mm-hmm. Uh, multimedia, sorry. And the combination of poetry with visuals, stills, art, like often I feel like when people talk about a multimedia experience, they're talking about visual and audio Mm -hmm. and that somehow uh books are kind of limiting they're like a single medium Mm -hmm. Uh, and i feel like she really just like defies all of that by saying like this is the ultimate way to say what i'm saying Mm -hmm. like i have these other videos that say a very specific thing but we'll put them in context here and it's a greater statement to be made by making Mm -hmm. it um words on a page and as we've often said about poetry it's people coming in poets come in with their tweezers to like yeah. put the right word in the right place. Yeah, yeah. And literally whoever whoever was in charge of like the the logistics of printing this book must have had some major work to do to get yeah. some of these things like lined up so specifically so that her meaning is encaptured with every single space, with every line break, with every page break. Um 
if a yeah. picture is going to fill to the margins or have, you know, an indent. Because yeah, there's the there's section, um, this, the, one of the video transcripts is a collection of quotes by different people around the topic of, I think it's the 2006 World Cup, um, where an Algerian soccer player was uh, called some racial slurs. Um, and so the way it's lined up, <laughs> it has the quote on the left, and then it has the name of the person who said it on the next page um, sort of lined up perfectly with it. So if those pages were like slightly off, like it wouldn't like visually, you can barely tell that that's what it means um, as it is because they're not in quotation marks and they're like, you're like, why would the name be on the next page? And, um, and then the quotes from the soccer player himself are in bold. Um, and it's, it's a really fascinating way to put together a poem because it's like, just, it's no original text. It's just created through compilation basically, which is a lot like this book as a whole. Um, yeah. And the one element I particularly like about that poem or that part of this poem, um, with the, the world, the 2006 world cups bit is how she's able to make meaning of just the stuff on the left page. So mm-hmm. if you're just reading all these quotes, it still made sense to me. It felt a little weird because it was changing from like a very formal, it was changing tense to more casual and it was doing a lot of shifting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then when I realized that the name of the, uh, the person quoted is on the right page, mm-hmm. I was able to clue it together. And it's almost like two ways to read it. Mm-hmm. Like she's making a statement through other people's statements kind of collaged together, which yeah. is like really, she just seems really brilliant. Like she's yeah. just thinking like, like there is no box to even think outside of. Cause she's just, <laughs> you know, creating. like an ever expanding universe. Cause if you, if you divide it up and read the pages separately and you were just reading the list of names, I like, I've never tried it that way, but like, I wonder if that in and of itself is significant. Because it's got, like, Frederick Douglass and Franz Fanon and this soccer player dude. And it's, like, some significant, like, um, black voices throughout history. But then there's also Shakespeare. So, I don't know. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, so the soccer player is Zinedine Zidane. Yeah, I'm I probably so. butchering the pronunciation, but, yeah, that's the Algerian soccer player. Hmm. It's probably pronounced with a French accent, however you would say that, but let's not try it. <laughs> <laughs> so as I mentioned earlier, this book kind of goes like, okay, I'm tracking, I'm tracking, I'm tracking. Wait, what the, what, what is happening? Where are we? And then at the end, I'm like, wait, I think I'm tracking again. Mm-hmm. And it's a, this big emotional journey. And, and as we've discussed it and I've been thinking about it, um, it kind of feels like, okay, I'm going to go music terminology here. It feels like a slow crescendo Mm. to like a quadruple forte (laughs) and then a pretty quick diminuendo Uh um or if you want to think visually it's like you're watching a short film of someone sitting and doing one small activity like the image she gives towards the beginning is like laying in bed where you're too exhausted or to even like pick up one of your screens to look Mm -hmm. at (laughs) you're just laying there Mm -hmm. so imagine looking at like a uh or a woman laying on a bed, just like staring. Mm-hmm. And then it's like all these scenes and all these images and all these thoughts and all these feelings portrayed. And then at the very end, you're like watching her like still lay in bed or maybe she like rolls over. Like mm-hmm. it's like, it's like a one small moment, but here's everything that's going on internally and yeah. everything that's going on systemically around this character we're introduced to. Um, yeah. That's where I've landed on what I think this book feels like. I'm curious what you yeah, think. Yeah, it's a bit like a big wave that sort of comes and crashes down um, where it uh, reaches sort of a peak of um, chaos or like the lines kind of dissolve of like where reality is and where we are in space and time. Um, 
And it feels to me a bit like Virginia Woolf's really late work. Um, she has her book called The Waves is like almost indecipherable because it's so disconnected from the physical reality of like time and place and action that you normally get in a book. It's like just consciousness, basically floating consciousness. And um, it like, I think it has a plot. Couldn't tell you what it is. Um, and I sort of got that feeling from the like crescendo, the sort of peak of this book um, where it kind of feels like she's piling, as you said, it feels like we're in one moment, one very quiet moment. And she's piling all of these things, the, um, all of these different moments throughout her life on top of each other so that they're all sort of happening simultaneously. And it feels like that's kind of what she's arguing. Like she has this line that says, um, before it happened, it had happened and happened. Like in the moment something is happening, it has already happened a million times and it will continue to happen. And it's just sort of all piling on top of each other. Um, but anyway, I wanted to give an example of what one of these moments is like, um, early on in the book when you can sort of understand, uh, what's happening. So here it is. It doesn't have a title. So a man knocked over her son in the subway. You feel your own body wince. He's okay. But the son of a bitch kept walking. She says she grabbed the stranger's arm and told him to apologize. I told him to look at the boy and apologize. Yes, and you want it to stop. You want the child pushed to the ground to be seen, to be helped to his feet, to be brushed off by the person that did not see him, has never seen him, has perhaps never seen anyone who is not a reflection of himself. The beautiful thing is that a group of men begin to stand behind me like a fleet of bodyguards, she says, like newly found uncles and brothers. That one's my favorite. That one is like a a moment of hopefulness mm. in, in within some of these other stories that don't necessarily feel like they have a, a positive resolution yeah. or a positive element as much. But yeah, we get a lot of those at the beginning of these aggressions and microaggressions against Black people. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of continue to expand and spiral in her thoughts as well as like looking at these big high profile things like Serena Williams, as well as like the small moments of like a white friend over coffee or lunch making comments about affirmative action. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And there's one uh, example I wanted to give where we, s I couldn't pinpoint and say this is the beginning of the spiraling or, you know, where we are in the crescendo, but it's part of the crescendo. Mm -hmm. This is uh, page 63. The world is wrong. You can't put the past behind you. It's buried in you. It's turned your flesh into its own cupboard. Not everything remembered is useful, but it all comes from the world to be stored in you. Who did what to whom on which day? Who said that? She said what? What did he just do? Did she really just say that? He said what? What did she do? Did I hear what I think I heard? Did that just come out of my mouth? His mouth? Your mouth? Do you remember when you sighed? I feel like it's more mm. of like explicit spiraling there. Yeah, <laughs> Just yeah. kind of repeating and repeating, repeating these phrases. Yeah. But in the imagery there, which is interesting to say, because it doesn't have uh, maybe the hallmark signs of imagery and poetry but to me the imagery is all these vignettes that she just gave us of mm. a man uh accidentally pushing over a boy and not looking back mm -hmm. um of a white woman making <laughs> offensive comments mm -hmm. over lunch mm -hmm. and then it's just the uh the narrator just like throwing all these questions back like he said that she did what who said that like mm. just your mind starts to spin of like from this perspective that she's giving of like, is this all really just happening right now? <laughs> um, that yeah. kind of feeling. But also when she gives the vignette moments of different microaggressions, she never responds in the telling of it. 
Um, and so this moment that you just read kind of feels like all the responses that she didn't say, all the things that she just like swallowed in the moment. And now it's like, they're all piling on top of each other all at once of like, Oh my God, he did that. And she said that, and this happened and that happened. And Oh my God. So this book is in second person. (laughs) I feel like, uh, as is fairly clear from the two excerpts we just read. Um, what do you think she's doing with second person? Oh my God. Uh, (laughs) so much. (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, we had a long discussion about this yesterday, so I'll see if I can give the best answer that we've landed on. Um, The greatest hits, you might say. (laughs) Yeah, the the greatest hits. Um, Yeah, so she makes different references to uh, the first person, the word I, um throughout the poem. Like, it's sort of self-referential. She kind of shows you her hand in certain sections. Um, One time, she describes the word I, or the letter I, as a symbol barely holding a person together. And in another section, um, she describes how... uh, Black people are not treated as subjects, you know, as people, um, but rather as objects uh, to be commodified um, and treated not as their own human beings, but as, uh, I mean, as they originally were in uh, the United States, treated as property. Um, And so I think she's trying to demonstrate that fact for herself um, by not giving herself that symbol of first person that she uses to try and hold herself together and hold herself as a subject um, because it just dissolves so quickly. Instead, she's using this you, this second person, um, to describe her own autobiographical experience, but to sort of symbolize like the lack of agency um, and also the like collectiveness. Um, There's got to be a better word for that, but the way that uh, (laughs) white powerful people and systems generalize all of black people uh, as one group that all have the same thoughts and aren't individuals with their own beliefs and hopes and dreams. Um, Like something that with the last election that always phrases that very uh, are bothersome to me, like the black vote or the Latino vote or the female vote. I'm like, there's only one. They only got to cast one vote Uh, all together. They all had to have a meeting all several millions of them. Um, So something like that. Um, And I think she's doing that with the second person. Uh, Similar to like, um, she has a section where she has this repeated phrase of, hey, you, um, referring to how people talk to her or address her, right? So rather than using her titles um, or her last name or her first name or her position or anything, um, they say, hey, you. Um, as if you is a stand-in for anyone who looks like her. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I totally agree with everything. <laughs> um, I feel like that's kind of where we landed too from our yeah. conversation yesterday. Learning that, you know, a, a lyric poem is often in first person, I think is another particular choice that she's making. Like now that we mm. know it's part of the uh, typical form, we realize she's breaking it, which is usually where good poetry happens, right. um, just right outside the lines. And I think she's doing a lot of things here, and I might be repeating what we've already said. That's okay. <laughs> but the world, um, white people, systemic racism in America, w- we give 
we take personhood away from black people Mm -hmm. and there's like a lack of personhood that the world gives in general to black people Mm -hmm. and to have one black voice say all these things about I myself is unfortunately and terribly the reason so many white people, we will just ignore a black voice because, Oh, that's just you. That's Mm -hmm. just your perception of what happened. And by switching it, she's almost like, I think she's doing two things. I think she's one acknowledging that this, the I, like you were quoting, the, the singular I does not hold power to other mm. people. People do not perceive that as powerful. Um, and at the same time, she like shoves other people into her experiences. Mm. When you read it as the reader, it's as if uh, it's addressing you. Right. And it puts you directly in those situations. And forces i mean mean, i'm reading from a white perspective here that's duly noted Mm -hmm. um but when when read from a white perspective being put in the shoes of a black person and the experiences i think it's kind of pulling apart and encouraging these conversations and also pointing out the pervasive um and insidious racism in our society yeah. It's like an act of empathy. Like it's forcing you to have the thought of like, well, what if I was in this situation? How would I feel? Um, Cause it's happening to you, <laughs> not to I. Um, hmm. I like that. Thanks. And those are my thoughts today. I know Julia, <laughs> you were saying yesterday when we were prepping, you're like, Oh gosh, the, the person I was when I commented on this in class, you know, five, six years ago. Yeah. Think so differently now. And I'm sure I'll listen back to this podcast in five months or five years and be like, why did I say that that way? <laughs> I would say it this way, or maybe I wouldn't say anything at all. Like maybe this isn't my place to say anything. Yeah. But um, anyways. We're processing. Yeah. We're processing. As a, I know this isn't a book, but a lot of authors talk about how you outgrow your books and how you should outgrow your books. Because you change over time, but your books don't. And so I think as something that we create, we're definitely going to outgrow this, you know? And, like, I think we've already outgrown some of our old podcast episodes. Yeah. Um, So that's okay. Um, Unless we've, like, hurt someone and then we'll definitely get rid of it. (laughs) Yeah, that's not okay. Uh, Yeah. Um, Cool. Well, I think we just, like finish that up should we move on to serena williams okay yes i've been waiting i mean we don't really follow tennis you and i well i i maybe can't speak for you i don't follow tennis my family doesn't follow follow tennis tennis. at all i i think venus and serena williams were like the only tennis players i could name by name growing up um because they were on a bunch of like american women's like products you know they would sell like deodorant or uh razors or sports gear or under armor or whatever um or they were on wheaties boxes i but i don't know if i ever watched them play um but in my mind they're just like the equivalent of this is what a tennis player is um and so yeah it was definitely very interesting um because I, I didn't know any of the the moments she mentioned in this section either at all. Um, and it makes complete sense that tennis would be an extremely white space that, that checks out for me. Um, and uh, that they would, um, I say they, that Serena Williams specifically would have to navigate these kinds of um like just bad call after bad call after bad call. And she just has to like suck it up because if she expresses any kind of feeling, um, she gets like ripped to shreds by, uh, you know, judges or, um, the audience or the, uh, commentators on the television or like she was, she had, she was like fined like eighty thousand dollars for something because she got angry once, 
Um, and what Claudia Rankin does, I call it an essay because that's kind of what it feels like. You move from these sort of vignette, these poetic vignettes to section two, and it feels like an essay on anger. It's like, um, you know, it starts off like with evidence in the way that you would start off an essay. Um, and she sort of presents her case of all of the moments that Serena Williams had experienced that led her to her outburst. And that like, she gave, she gives you like her, I mean, she gives you evidence of why Serena Williams outbursts was actually not a reaction just to the specific moment was, but was a reaction to this previous moment and this previous moment and this previous moment. And it all builds up and she just couldn't hold it back anymore. And she lets it all out. Yeah. The way she ends it too really stands out to me. And it's ended with a full like margin to margin photo Mm. of um, Wozniacki, Dane Caroline Wozniacki, like stuffing her bra and her shirt and skirt to like mime Serena. And it's just disgusting. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I, anyways, she ties... At the very beginning, she opens up uh, up talking about this uh, YouTube video that kind of um, Riley suggests that Black people's anger is marketable and like how to be an angry artist, like how to be a successful artist by marketing your anger. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she kind of ties it together at the end saying, it's then that Hennessy's suggestions about how to be a successful artist returns to you, be ambiguous, be white. And then the way she ties it with this ending, it's like just a, another example of how white people have appropriated blackness to be funny or to like be successful. And it's like mm-hmm. Wozniacki, sure, she's a fine tennis player, but she's like posing as uh, the best tennis player. But because that best tennis player is black, like no one gets on her about it in the same way mm-hmm. they like rip Serena apart for like losing her anger once. Instead, I don't know they what I'm really saying here, but like rather than being Rankin, punished, they think it's funny. Right. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And it, um, it's interesting at a certain point, she brings the second person into this section too, where she, um, you sort of pull out of, Serena Williams experience and you realize you are Claudia Rankin sitting watching Serena Williams over the years on TV. Um, And then she references it in later sections um, of moments of realization that she had while watching Serena Williams and how she connects that to her own experience. Um, and so you realize at a certain point, like, this is a way, this isn't just her, you know, uh, expounding her thoughts on Black women's anger, you know, it's actually, like, a way of her saying, um, this was through watching Serena Williams, I was better able to explain and understand myself, um, because this is something I also experience. And so here's an example of what I'm doing in this poem to, like, show you what that feels like. Uh, so I thought that was cool. Because when you first start it, you're like, how is she going to tie this back in? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. where are we going? Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, you're like, why? it? Because it feels like an abrupt adjustment. All of a sudden, you're like, why am I in an essay? Um, but it it all comes back around. Yeah. Um, it really adds into that like crescendo of these individual experiences. Like, okay, now you've seen a couple of individual every day from Rankin. Here's mm-hmm. one of someone you know and likely admire. Mm-hmm. And let's take a look at the fact that she, all this attention was brought to her when she lost her temper once. Mm-hmm. And here's all these other times she's been holding it back mm-hmm. and kind of, uh, I feel like blows apart the stereotype of like the angry black woman because yeah. it's like, 
they've been not angry in so many times that they right. had the right to be. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah, so I think she just continues to build her crescendo of this uh, poem by going from the personal every day to the popular on TV, mm-hmm. uh, mainstream sports media, um, and, you know, expands from there. So when she goes beyond herself, mm-hmm. uh, we reach probably about, what would you say, two-thirds of the way through the book? Yeah. yeah. Um, this list of names, mm. which is really interesting, especially when, Julia, you gave me an extra piece of context. Because yeah. you sat in a room with, like, 12 to 20 other people who all had different versions mm-hmm. of that poem or that part of the poem. Yeah. So um, every single time... Uh, or my my poetry teacher somehow knew this, and then we could look in our books and see it for ourselves. Every single time this book was printed, and I think continues uh, to this day, every single time it's printed, they add to the list of names. And it's a list, an incomplete list, but a list nonetheless of um, Black people who have been killed by police, um, or primarily by police. I haven't looked into every single one. Um, but this is on page, if you have a copy, 134. Your page yeah. 134 might look really different than others. Yeah. Um, the first printing, actually, both 134 and 135 are actually different. Um, mm. And different than they are today. Um, okay. Yeah, the in-memory list, because Julia's book, which we both read, is from, I think, July 20, 2016 yeah. was when this one was printed. And so it includes um, those who were murdered and the victims of the Charleston um, shooting mm-hmm. at the uh, 16th Street Baptist Church are included yeah. in this uh, this version. And then, or this printing. So it starts in memory of Jordan Russell Davis, in memory of Eric Gardner, in memory of John Crawford, in memory of Michael Brown, in memory of Laquan McDonald. And it continues on through the entire page. And begins to gray out. Mm-hmm. And after, in memory of Philando Castile, this edition, um, or this printing, then goes in memory, in memory, in memory, until it fades to white. And then on mm-hmm. the facing page, because white men can't police their imagination, black people are dying. Hmm. Yeah, that page, you just got to sit with it for a minute. Because it feels like such a long list and yet you know it's so small compared to the reality. Mm -hmm. And the list of names that go unsaid because there wasn't mass attention. Yeah. The list of black trans people who aren't included, Mm -hmm. who have suffered even more violence. And just all the names that have been added could be added since this was printed in 2016. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's a moment that I will never forget um, is sitting in class. My teacher told us to open our books to that page or to flip to that page. And she told us to like compare books to everyone else. And we sort of started walking around the room and just like, comparing books and um everyone in my class had a different length um I think mine was the longest um but some had four names some had you know like 10 um and it gives you a very visual sense and then you know it leaves you in memory of in memory of and sort of trails off it's sort of leaving room for future murders um, assuming that they're going to happen. And since this book was printed, they have. Um, and just having that, that very clear visual with a group of people, um, and, you know, sort of confronting as a class of, you know, university students were fairly privileged, um, what uh, 
what we have to reckon with in our country was very, very formative moment for me um, in a way that other moments hadn't been quite as much. Um, Yeah. And it either comes right before or right after the elegy for Trayvon Martin. Um, Which is also very, very good um, and heartbreaking. Um, Yeah. It, It acts as a kind of memorial, you know, like the way you would build a memorial to war dead. Um, But, you know, our country won't make something like that, won't say them by name. And so this is a way of like ensuring that their names are in print and that they won't be forgotten. So thanks for encouraging me to read this book, Julia, talking through it. I feel like, uh, having opportunities to talk through books is the reason we started this podcast. And yes. It's been <laughs> really helpful ever since. Um, and mm-hmm. hopefully for you listeners, this is a place where you can think through your own thoughts, what you think we'd love to hear. You can, uh, here's a couple mm-hmm. things that we recommend yeah. after reading this. Do you want to go first? Um, sure. Uh, the first section of this book, uh, the sort of vignettes um, reminded me a lot of I'm So Fine, A List of Famous Men and What I Had On by Khadija Queen that we covered on the podcast. Um, just the layout of it on the page where it's sort of a uh, block of text with no breaks um, and playing around with uh, first and second person and um, really just, again, compiling evidence, like a bunch of different scenes of um, things that have happened to the the poet. Um, And then I would also say, if you're trying to, mm, I would also say some essential reading for uh, understanding our recent history in terms of the racial reckoning in America. Uh, We were eight years in power um, by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Very crucial, I think. Um. My recommendation uh, for reading Friday Block by Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. Uh, Julia also stole mine. I'm so fine. I think it's a good Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> poetry wreck. Friday Block is a collection of short stories. Um, really, really great. I won't say more than that. Uh, yeah. For time. And when I was prepping for this episode, uh, a book podcast that I follow called The Stacks, hosted by Tracy Thomas, did an episode where they also discussed Citizen, and she had on a guest, Darnell Moore, who is an activist and author. I really enjoyed their conversation um, and would recommend, if you like book podcasts, that you check out The Stacks. Um, a little different than what we do. They do uh, a lot more interviews with uh, Tracy brings on different authors and speakers, and so it's really, really fun mm. time to listen. But they specifically have an episode on Citizen that came out recently. Hmm. And then I mentioned up top, if you are interested in poetry, you've made it through this hour-long episode about poetry, but are still a little intimidated for a place to start, I would honestly point you over to some really great Instagram poets. Um, I think it's a way to kind of infuse poetry in your day-to-day. There's Button Poetry is an account we follow with a book club. And uh, Morgan Harper Nichols is one of my favorite poets who Mm. does a lot of art on art with her poetry on Instagram. And a lot of her poetry is like uh, really empowering letters kind of written to people who write in with very specific issues they're dealing with. And so without Mm. giving details of that issue, she responds back. That's how she started. I don't know if she does that for every poem she writes, Um, but I really love her work. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I will also say uh, some organizations to look into for education, but also places to donate. Uh, the 
sort of national and local chapters of Black Lives Matter and also Campaign Zero are actively tackling police brutality in our country. Um, Along those lines, uh, another place to look for great resources, it's a podcast as well as a website with online digital resources called White Homework. This is put together by Tori Williams Douglas. Um, and then if you're in the Chicagoland area, and even if you're not and you just think they're cool, um, the Lighthouse Foundation supports uh, LGBTQ Black people in Chicago um, with a lot of resources and financial support, as well as a community. They do really great um, artistic events digitally with the pandemic and used to do them in person. Um, I recently had a chance to speak with um, one of the leaders, I guess not recently, it was like six months ago, um, on like a community call. And it was really, really great. And I really love the work they do. I Mm. also financially support them, but whether you support them with your time or financially, I think they're, they're doing really great work in the Chicagoland area. That's awesome. And okay. on a lighter note. <laughs> on a lighter note. Uh, what are you currently obsessed with? What's keeping yeah. you interested, engaged, bringing you joy, mm-hmm. get you out of bed in the morning, or maybe keep you on the couch in the afternoon? <laughs> yeah. Um, keeps me from going crazy. Uh, <laughs> but doing a lot of crafting. I was talking to my friend on the phone the other day and she too is doing a lot of crafting and she was like, yeah, it keeps the demons at bay. And I was like, that's exactly <laughs> what it does. It, <laughs> um, you know, keeping your hands busy. Um, but some media, uh, I recently discovered and finished, uh, staged on Hulu. It was originally aired on the BBC. Um, and it's, uh, the premise I think which originates in reality somewhere is that Michael Sheen and David Tennant, who you may recognize from Good Omens, the two leads, um, or Doctor Who or a million other things, uh, were supposed to do a play on the West End. And obviously everything got shut down. People can't sit in theaters anymore. And so um, they did this like, self-filmed slash filmed over zoom uh tv show where they sort of dramatized this process of um trying to read for the play and the director's in it and there's some guest appearances from great people um and it's hilarious i mean the like the chemistry between the two of them they're just like comedic gold like just the two of them in a scene together uh regardless of what it's for um so yeah it was really really funny and it was like it felt like the way that we talk to friends now over zoom and they sort of line up their screens side by side or i don't know it was fascinating um i really enjoyed it so yeah i would recommend that uh as well it's on hulu in the states so I have never been a morning person. Um, <laughs> even as an infant, I was a night owl. My mom would be like, why are you still awake at 10 p.m.? You are an infant. Um, but that's me. <laughs> but I have some personal projects that I just haven't been been putting time towards. And so I finally said, like, okay, the first hour of my day is always a wash because I'm waking up, I'm drinking coffee, I'm eating breakfast, I'm, like, getting ready. But that second hour is now, like, me time. And so if I have to start work at nine, that means I wake up at seven. So that hour from eight to nine is like my me time. Um, I'm only one weekend. So catch up with me in a month when I've totally thrown this habit out the window. But (laughs) (laughs) right now it's been really good and really uh, reinvigorating, even when it's just taking care of little things like making sure I have all the right documents I need to file my taxes or Uh um, keeping up with some work for the podcast or emailing back in my personal email that doesn't get done during the workday. Cause by the end of the workday, I'm like burnt out and I don't want to yeah. put time into my own personal projects. Mm-hmm. And so this has been a really good way to like give the first part of the day back to myself instead of yeah. giving it to the man <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> with my nine to five job. Uh, so that's been great. And then <laughs> I don't know if we mentioned it here before, but the fitness marshal on YouTube <laughs> yes. is wonderful. It's brought so much joy to our household. Yes, it has. Um, the 
I don't know his last name, but his first name is Caleb <laughs> and he's a dancer uh-huh. and he puts together these great workout choreography dances to all your favorite songs and um, sometimes syncs a bunch of them up into like a half hour workout. So you do a bunch of different songs and mm-hmm. uh, Varun and I have really gotten into it. Watching him learn to twerk has been the best <laughs> thing ever lately. <laughs> it's hilarious also because I can't really do it either and we both look ridiculous <laughs> together and I love it. Um, so if you're looking for a fun workout yeah. and I also really appreciate their approach, um, they have, a, they have one dancer com- like dedicated to doing modifications. So if you've got, um, limited flexibility or limited mobility and you can't do some of the jumps or squats or other things, you can still participate fully. If you got and, bad knees like Victoria. <laughs> yeah, honestly. Um, <laughs> And their whole idea is just to get you moving and they're never going to pressure you to like lose weight. Let's get trim and drop that fat. Like all those terrible messages that we don't need. Um, They're very focused on like, let's move and feel good in a way that works for us and also look sexy while doing it. Or at least think you look sexy. I don't know. (laughs) Don't film me. I'm sure I'm not as sexy as the trained professional dancers that are doing the videos. Yeah. But also, yeah. as a dancer myself, I have to say, the, they are actually good dances. Like, they're, yeah. you know, simple and... Repeated. I say as if I'm also a dancer, but no. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, they're actually interesting. I, there are some dance workouts which are incredibly dull um, that are not real dancing. But this feels like you're really, you know, dancing. Um, so, yeah, it's fun. Thank you all so much for listening. If you would like to check out any of the recommendations we gave, as well as links to other things we mentioned through the episode, you can find us bookclubwithjv.com. Uh, we'll list all the show notes there. You can also follow along to see what we're reading next and uh, catch some cool memes that Julia leaves in our stories on Instagram at bookclubwithjv. A big thank you to Greg Burke, our sound engineer, for making us sound good and creating all of our original music. Another big thank you to Gabby Feblin for our design. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you guys on our next episode. Bye, guys. Happy reading.